Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this short audio 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 23, just six verses. We're going to finish up the chapter. The context is this. In the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul bemoans human wisdom, fleshly philosophical wisdom, the Greeks search for wisdom. And then in chapter 2, he says, no, we need to go for spiritual wisdom. The wisdom comes from the Holy Spirit. And he mentions there's a lot of division in the church. That comes from seeking after worldly wisdom, related to it at least. And so he exhorts to unity. And so all these themes will be tied together here at the end of chapter 3. So we start in verse 18. No one should deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he can become wise. And so Paul returns to his dissing of Greek philosophy. Now when he says, Paul says he must become foolish, he means foolish in the eyes of the world not foolish in the eyes of God, obviously. So that he can become wise, he means wise in the eyes of God, not in the wise not wise in the eyes of the world. You can't be both. It's impossible. Now the NIV translates this in an interesting manner. It says that this person that thinks he is wise, he must become, quote, a fool, unquote. In other words, the NIV puts the word in air quotes, fool, which shows that the word is used ironically. Now this as I said, repeats Paul's earlier theme about the foolishness of the world, of the wisdom of the world in the first chapter, 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.22, for since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. 1 Corinthians 1.24, yet to those who are called both Jews and Greek, Christ is God's, Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. So there you have it, God's wisdom, foolishness of the world. The two don't go along and get, they don't go together. And we have got to get used to the idea that the world's going to call us stupid and foolish. You just worshiping a bunch of fairy tales. How, why are you not out here saving the world Saving the world from climate change, you're going around there preaching your foolish gospel. Why are you saying that people are sinners, that you think you're better than everybody else? In other words, like Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, who thinks that he's wiser than God, because why would a loving God put people in hell? Never mentions the fact is, why would a loving God not throw every sinner into hell because of our horrible sin that we've committed against him? Making God in their own eyes, that's what the fools of this world do. And we're going to be called foolishness because we preach otherwise. Now, Paul says, if anyone among you thinks, I don't think he's thinking about any particular person among the Corinthians. He's just talking in general, if anybody. We go to verse 19, 1 Corinthians. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. First point, whenever you see the phrase, it is written, that is a Jewish rabbinic way of saying what comes after the colon or what comes after the written, is Scripture. That's the, that is the formula that is used to show that Scripture is about to be quoted. And so Paul shows, since he's quoting from Job, he shows that he believes that Job is Scripture. Now the passage he quotes is Job 5.13. He traps the wise in their craftiness so that the plans of the deceptive are quickly brought to an end. Now this is not Job speaking, this is Eliphaz speaking, one of Job's false friends. But Job's false friends a lot of times spoke truth, they just didn't apply it rightly to Job. And this is true, of course. He, God, traps the wise in their craftiness, Eliphaz says, and Paul says the same thing. Catches them up in a trap. They're, they're too smart for their own good. They'll smart their way right into hell, like a lot of these arrogant physicists 
What's the name of that guy? Hawkins. Oh, I don't believe in God. Christopher Hutchins. Oh, I don't believe in God. Quit praying for me. Well, they're fools. They're real smart people. You listen to them, you know they're smart. They're real intelligent. And they intelligent themselves right into hell. Now, I've been saying that when Paul talks about wisdom of the world, as in this verse, he's referring to Greek philosophies. And I'm sure that's true, but it also could be mean, as Adam Clark says, the pretended and deep and occult wisdom of the rabbis. Well, you have to be into rabbinic literature, which I'm not, to see all the stuff they can come up with, the Kabbalism and all the the, the gematria, the, the, the science of numbers. Oh, there's 375 letters in this verse. Therefore, that means something. And all this nonsense. But I think, really, that Paul is, is, get, is going after the wisdom of the Greeks. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. These may be fitly termed fools who acquire no saving knowledge by their speculations. And it is, and is it not, and is not this the case with the major part of all that is called philosophy, even in the present day? Has one soul been made wise unto salvation through it? Are, the most, are our most eminent philosophers either pious or useful men? Who of them is meek, gentle, and humble? Who of them directs his searches so as to ameliorate the moral condition of his fellow creatures? Pride, insolence, self-conceit, and complacency with a general forgetfulness of God, contempt for his word, and despite for the poor are their general characteristics. Well, that's quite an indictment. I think I've mentioned in earlier audios, I've read nine and straight, nine straight volumes of Copleton's History of Philosophy, and that is exactly the conclusion I came up with, is philosophers are the biggest fools that ever hit the big time. A complete waste of time. Now, when I say that, I don't mean necessarily Christian philosophers. They're not totally wasting their time, but I'm talking about the people who've just thrown God out and try to figure out God with their minds, a complete waste of time. 1 Corinthians 3.20, and again, Paul means, I'm quoting scripture again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are meaningless. Notice how Paul loves to quote the scripture when he's making his point, even the Gentile churches. Psalm 94.11 is the scripture he's quoting, the Lord knows man's thoughts, they are meaningless. Psalm 94.8 is the context, is, is a verse that's near 94.11, and this is what Psalm 94.8 says, pay attention, you stupid people, fools, when will you be wise? Oh, gosh. I wish I'd have had that verse to put up on my door when I was a college professor. Gosh, that would have been great. It's too late now. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 22. Paul continues, So no one should boast in human leaders, for everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. Everything is yours. Now, this verse is a little opaque to me. First of all, verse 21, no one should boast in human leaders. Actually, that's easy because Paul has earlier complained about people saying, I am of Paul, I am with Paul, I am with Cephas, I am with Apollos. And they were dividing the church up in factions head, headed by church leaders. And Paul said, no, you ought not do that. Well, he's already complained about that in previous passages. And he says, everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. It means that, hey, every church leader belongs to every church member. And so every church leader is ours. I, I get everything, every insight they have, every gift that they have, it's mine. And it's yours, it's everybody. So quit dividing everybody up. Now he says the world is yours. The world is yours. Now what does that mean? Well, I, I, I needed somebody, somebody to help me flesh that out a little bit. So I went to Alfred Barnes' commentary. I thought he did a pretty good job. The world is the Christians. Everything in the world a Christian needs to live in the world. Adam Barnes basically says, 
That would include the universe, all things pertaining to this life. Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And of course, he's referring to physical sustenance, food and clothing and such. Jesus was at the Sermon on the Mount. It's all yours. That's the world. That's the things in the world that you need to live. Psalm 37.25, I have been young and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. So, everything physically that you need to live in the world is yours. Everything in the world is yours. Going on with that idea, Barnes says the course of providential events are yours. The course of providential events are ordered for the welfare of Christians. Providence is yours. Things look bad, he takes it and says, well, we're going to change the course of events so that the church will flourish and not be wiped out in this cold, cruel, and hard world. Barnes says the frame of the universe is sustained and upheld for Christian's sake. The frame of the universe is yours. Sun, moon, stars, time, seasons are all ordered to protect the church. That's very encouraging. Everything, everything in this world that we need for existence in this world is ours. And then he says life is ours. That could either be physical life or spiritual life probably. Both, it comes from God. We've got it. But now this is interesting. Death Death is ours? What does Paul mean by that? Well, at first glance, that seems a strange thing to say. Whoa, congratulations, death is yours. <laughs> well, John Gill says it means the death of Christ, which pardoned them from their sin. I don't think that's what Paul meant here. I think it meant their own death, but their own death, which was an entrance to heaven. It's ours. We don't have to worry about dying. Things to come seem to indicate that because Paul in this verse says that things to come also are ours. That means heaven. So death leads to heaven, and that's, and that's ours. Death is the entrance to heaven. It's ours. How do we own death? Albert Barnes says, well, Christians have peace and support in their dying hour. Death has no terror for the Christians. Christians shall triumph over death. So yeah, de we own death. death. Death doesn't have any fear for us. We win there too. We've got all that. So what do you need Greek philosophy for? Or rabbinic lore? Or some special guru Christian teacher? What do you need all that for? you got everything. Everything is yours in Christ. All things to come are ours, Paul says in this verse. That could mean all things to come in this world, or it could mean all things in the world to come. I think it sounds to me like he's talking about all things in the world to come, but it doesn't matter. It could be the future things in this world. They're yours too. They're providentially ordered by God. Everything, he sums all that up. Things in the world, life, death, things present, things to come. He sums it all up by saying everything is yours. Everything you need is yours. So if everything is ours, do we need to worry about not having anything? I don't think so. Now when he says everything is yours, obviously he means everything pertaining to salvation, which includes your physical life, but basically it means every spiritual thing that you need in order to exist as a Christian in this world is yours. That should be it. That's a very encouraging verse. It's, the verse is not quoted often, and it's kind of overlooked, but I like it. Paul continues with the reason why we don't need human leaders. Because not only is everything ours, as in verse 22, but in verse 23, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Well, if you belong to Christ, you don't need anything because Christ belongs to God and God ain't poor. God doesn't need anything. Paul says, you belong to Christ. The NIV translates it this way, you are of Christ. The NIV Study Bible says that that should be interpreted this way, united with and belonging to Christ. So you, you, you are in Christ, you belong to Christ, you're in union with Christ, all the same thing. And Christ is in union with the Father. Christ belongs to God. John 10.30 says, the, Jesus says, the Father and I are one. God the Father and God the Son are united. 
and also the second person of the Trinity, that Jesus is in union with God, the Holy Spirit, the third person, for 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The sharing of the Holy Spirit, that implies that Jesus shares the Holy Spirit with God. It doesn't state it directly, but it does imply it. Fellowship means sharing, koinonia. So, Here's, here's the train of thought here. We belong to Christ. We're in union with Christ. Christ is in union with God. So therefore, we are in union with God. And God doesn't need anything. So why should you need anything? What you worried about? Also, he's also trying to say, not only do you not need anything, he's also trying to say, you're in union. That's unity. You, Jesus, and God are in perfect unity. And the implication is, maybe you guys in Corinth ought to start imitating that unity at least a little bit and quit dividing up in factions because your disunity contradicts who contradicts who you are you are in union with christ and in union with each other and in union with god and yet you go around splitting splitting up over stupid things the NIV study bible says paul is trying to show the tight unity of christians with god and adam clark says that his statement here in this verse is a perfect contrast with the disunity that had appeared in the Corinthian church. Ladies and gentlemen, I am finished with this short audio. We will take up chapter 4 in the next audio. In chapter 4, Paul will deal with apostleship, what it means to be an apostle. And of course, he's talking about his apostleship, which was being questioned by certain people in the church at Corinth. And so he sort of starts to begin some serious chastisement here in chapter 4. We'll take that up in the next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.